This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today we will continue our conversations on the American Civil War, 1865. My guest will be Professor William Cooper, Kingstree native, retired recently from LSU, and the author of a biography of Jefferson Davis. When he brought his book out a little over a decade ago, as more than one reviewer said, well, there have been 10 books in the last few years, but this is the biography of Jefferson Davis. It's called Jefferson Davis, American. Tonight we'll find out why Bill decided to call it Jefferson Davis, American. But Bill, welcome back home. Thank you very much, Walter. I'm glad to be here. With all the other work that you had had done, why did you decide at that stage in your career to take on Jefferson Davis? I had long thought about Davis. I'd wanted to write a dissertation about him, but my dissertation advisor told me I wasn't ready. I wrote a lot of stuff about antebellum Southern politics, and Davis was always a part of that. It interested me very much. He still did. And I became a dean. When I gave up being a dean in the late 1980s, I decided it was now or never. And the people at the Jefferson Davis Papers Project at Rice gave me open stack privileges in all of their documents. Uh, literally tens of thousands of them, and so I decided to do it. And I went to Rice in the fall of 1988, prepared to get through those materials by the end of the, the semester. <laughs> in December, I had done 1861 through 1865, and that was all. And Davis lived from 1808 to 1889. So I was very anxious for a while, but I plugged away and got to the end. All right, well, one of the things that, that makes your biography stand out is so many of them are books about Davis, not necessarily biographies, although they call life and times and what have you, deal with just the period 1861 to 1865. You mentioned that Jefferson Davis was 80-something years old when he died. That's correct. And this is really a complete biography of the man who was the only president of the Confederate States of America. Again, why that approach, it, it was totally different. If you go understand anybody in any phase of his life, I think you have to understand what comes before. And Davis as president of the Confederacy was in many ways a Davis who was there before 1860. And I wanted to write his life. I wanted to try to understand him, and what happened to him after the war, how he dealt with what happened to him, and how he dealt with the South after the war. That interested me also. What he thought about the United States after the war interested me. And there were all sorts of just general views thrown around that Davis hated the United States, that Davis was always recalcitrant, that Davis was a stiff-backed rebel till he died. I just, I just wanted to find out whether I really believed all that. Okay. Well, let's talk about the Davis before 1860. Among the things that you do mention, I mean, there are People always try to draw parallels. You, you didn't, but people do between Davis and Lincoln. They were both born in Kentucky, not that far apart. He went to Transylvania College, which was the hometown of Mary Todd Lincoln. But he didn't grow up with a silver spoon in his mouth. He was a country boy. So how did he end up being a planter in the Mississippi? No, he, he, he did grow up as a son of a very ambitious, hardworking farmer. His father was born in Georgia. His father was trying to make it in Georgia. He got a land grant from the state of Georgia because he had served in the Georgia militia during the American Revolution. And that's something Davis was very, very proud of. He always spoke of himself as not only an ideological son of the American Revolution, but a biological one as well. Well, early on, Jefferson Davis's father moved to Kentucky with several other people from his area in Georgia, which would have been northwest of Augusta, they moved to Kentucky where he was trying to make it. He was going west, trying to make it bigger and bigger. Well, he got to Kentucky and the bluegrass region was too expensive for him. So he moved west and as uh, Wallace said, not far from where Lincoln uh, was born. In fact, south of where Lincoln was born, close to the Tennessee line is where Davis was born. But his father was restless and his father was still ambitious and his father still hadn't made it. So he kept going west. And for a time he was in Southern Louisiana, but he didn't like the climate. So he moved north a bit to southwestern Mississippi, a small village of Woodville. And there Davis spent his boyhood. His father never 
rose beyond the ranks of a mid-level, hard-working farmer. And his historians call people of the antebellum South like this yeoman. He was a yeoman farmer. He owned some land. He had a few slaves on and off, but he never managed to strike it rich. He died really in debt, but he had a, a son older than Jefferson. In fact, this man became Jefferson's surrogate father after uh, Joseph died. He was 20-some-odd years older than Jefferson. His name was Joseph Davis. Joseph Davis got a land grant from the federal government up by Vicksburg, Mississippi, and he turned it into a magnificent plantation palace with thousands of acres of land. When Jefferson decided to leave the army in the mid-1830s, Joseph gave him a substantial tract of land for Jefferson to become his own boss and his own, run his own plantation. Now, when Jefferson began, he had one slave, a slave left to him by his father. But by the time 1860 comes, he had over 100 slaves. So Jefferson came into the planter class via his older brother. Now, he married Will the first time, too. I mean, he was, he was in the army, and he married the general's daughter. Well, he did marry the general's daughter. <laughs> the general was the colonel at that time, but the colonel did not approve of the, the uh, match at all. In fact, you can argue that one reason Jefferson got out of the army was he thought it would make it easier to marry the girl that he loved, Sarah Knox Taylor. Her, her father was Zachary Taylor, who, of course, was, became a general in the Mexican War and the President of the United States. But uh, Zachary and Jefferson had had some difficult times. While Jefferson was a young officer, and Zachary was his commanding officer, won't go into detail about those difficulties, but when they married, they married in Louisville, Kentucky, outside of Louisville in the home of a relative of Zachary Taylor's, but Zachary did not attend the wedding. He did sort of gave his blessing to the marriage. He sent his daughter some money, but he never was enthusiastic. And of course, Sarah Knox Taylor only lived three months. Uh, Jefferson took her down to the plantation outside of Vicksburg. Summer came, and they went down to West Feliciana Parish, Louisiana, which is just below the Mississippi line. But Jefferson had a, an older sister was to be healthier there. West Feliciana's rolling country, not flat like up by Vicksburg. But they both got malaria, virulent forms of malaria, and Saranox died. And Jefferson and Zachary, to the best of my knowledge, never saw each other again until 1844 on a riverboat going from Natchez to New Orleans they met. And all was patched up, and they became fast friends from then on until Taylor died in 1850 in the White House. And in fact, when Taylor died, Jefferson Davis was at his bedside. But with Sarah Knox, he got a good name. I mean, her name was a name people knew, but he didn't get any money from her. So his first wife died, and then, of course, he married second. And the, there's some pretty wonderful love letters between the two. He married a woman named Verena Howell. He was in his mid-30s. She was in her, in her late teens. They did have sort of a whirlwind romance. Her mother was anxious about the match. She felt Jefferson might be too old for her daughter. Also, she was worried that Jefferson hadn't really gotten over Sarah Knox because after she died in 1835, he really became a recluse on that plantation up there by Vicksburg. He didn't made one trip out to Washington, D.C., didn't do much at all except stay there. But 1844, he began to come out and got involved in politics a little bit. And then he met Verena, and he was just swept off his feet. And within a very short time, they did marry, but they did write some letters. She was down in Natchez, and he was in Vicksburg. They did write some letters. They, they got married, and right away, Jefferson was elected to the Congress, and he took her to Washington. And oh, my God, did she love it. <laughs> she liked Washington a whole lot better than she liked Warren County, Mississippi. <laughs> and for the rest of her life, she liked cities much better than the countryside. And at the end, when Jefferson Davis died down there in Biloxi, Mississippi, the first thing Rena did was move to New York City. <laughs> uh, their marriage was an interesting one, and for somebody like me who had been a political historian, to get involved with relationships between uh, two suitors to start with, a courtship, and then in a marriage, and the marriage started off, Jefferson, a man of his time, was very paternalistic, and of course, Marina was, could have been his daughter almost, and he treated her like a daughter. And uh, when she got to Washington and met all those famous people like Daniel Webster and the President of the United States and all the social events, she was a real lady and she wanted to be treated as such. And she and Jefferson had some very difficult times. 
And one of the difficulties they had was Jefferson's brother Joseph. Uh, Joseph thought of Verena not as a daughter, but as a granddaughter. <laughs> he had known her from her youth. Her father, he and her father had been very good friends, and she called him Uncle Joe. And he just could never, never come to terms with the fact that she had grown up and become a real woman. One of the real problems between Joseph and Verena was that Verena's father had uh, not been a success in business. He was a spendthrift. And Joseph feared that if the Howells got control of any of his land, it would be gone. And he was not going to let them get control. And Verena, of course, thought this was a slap at her, an insult to her, not treating her like an adult. And Jefferson, he wrote a, a stern letter on one occasion. He told her he went to Washington as a senator and left the home. Now, that was as big a blow as he could give her. And he told her if she couldn't shape up and learn how to treat him and not be so critical, they would stay apart. Of course, there would be no divorce. Uh, that was unthinkable, but they would stay apart. One of their problems also, they married in 1845, and Verena didn't have a child until 1853. In the middle of the 19th century, the major role for women to be a wife and a mother. And the young women she was around had children. She didn't have any. We know that she had one miscarriage. There could have been others, which we are unaware. We know about one. Uh, but in 1853, they had their first child. Uh, he didn't live. He died as, a, as an infant, well, a couple of years old. And then she had children in rapid succession after that. Their marriage became much more stable. Then in the Civil War, they became fast companions. She became his confidant. For example, in 1862, in the spring when the Federal Army was before Richmond and many thought Richmond was going to fall, Davis sent Verena and the children down to Raleigh, North Carolina, and the letters that they wrote survived most of them. And he didn't just say that he loved her and he hoped the children were safe and he was doing okay. He talked to her about military plans about military strategy, about what he was hoping to do, what he and Robert E. Lee were hoping to do. The relationship between them was a very, very powerful one. And it re remained very powerful until his death, but it was not always bucolic. And Jefferson Davis in the mid-1870s, his last business opportunity failed, he had no place to go and no money. He was offered the house down there, Beauvoir, which stands now as a museum house. A friend of his family is a, a lady who revered Jefferson. Ravina at that time was in England, and she learned that Jefferson Davis had gone from Memphis, where they had lived, to the Mississippi Gulf Coast with this woman who was a widow. She was not a happy camper. <laughs> she was not. Okay. All right. One of the things that the critics of of Davis have talked about is he thought he was better than any general he had. Now, he, he had in the Army served in the Black Hawk War, but then he volunteered for Mexico because that was good for his political career, right? Well, he was in the Army during the Black Hawk War. He probably didn't see any action in the Black Hawk War, though he did uh, escort Black Hawk from up in the Northwest down to St. Louis, but back to Mexico. He went to the Mexican War for two reasons. He went for political reasons, yes, but he also thought that he was a trained soldier. He'd been to West Point, he'd been in the regular army, that he owed his country to go to Mexico. And then, of course, he was elected colonel of his regiment. First Mississippi, he was elected colonel, and he was a very good regimental commander. He fought in two major battles, and he uh, performed quite ably, and he did think of himself always as a quite capable military commander. For example, after Gettysburg, the Confederate figure there, he said that if he and Lee, if he could have been there and Lee had one wing and he had another wing, they could have whipped the Federals. Uh, but he did feel that he had real military ability. Now, whether he had military ability to succeed as an army commander, one will never know. Now, that's a different from being a commander-in-chief. He was a commander-in-chief, and I think his record as a commander-in-chief, from, from my perspective, is a mixed one. The political side, I say, was very good. On the military side, he was not so good, particularly in the way he handled his generals. Well, all of this goes to help explain the man before he became president of the Confederacy. Anything else? Well, he was Secretary of War. He was the Secretary of War in the 1850s in the administration of Franklin Pierce. He did a very good job as Secretary of War. 
The thing about the antebellum Davis that struck me so when I began this, I realized that Davis was not a secessionist fanatic. He was not a radical secessionist. But I did not realize how strongly he opposed secession, that he really didn't want secession to take place. He did everything he could in his power to slow it down, to halt it. He desperately wanted something from the other side, from the Republicans that he could hang his hat on. And when that didn't come, and he lost in Mississippi in terms of slowing things down, he went out, of course. But the day he gave his final remarks in the United States Senate, he called the saddest day in his life. And that was a traumatic event for him, and it vastly influenced the way he handled himself as president of the Confederacy. And in 1860-61, he was senator from the state of Mississippi. So he was senator. U.S. He, senator. He was a man talked about as the president of the United States. Davis was a man of the year for Harper's Weekly in the late 1850s. I mean, he was a national figure, a figure of real importance. He was a part of the group of senators and congressmen in Washington by the end of 1860, December, end of December 1860, after South Carolina had seceded and after the Senate had failed to come up with a compromise measure, a special Senate committee of which Davis was a member had failed to come up with a compromise measure, uh, these men in Washington began making plans for a Southern Confederacy, and Davis was certainly a part of that. When he left Washington in January of 1861 to go back to Mississippi, he knew this meeting would take place in Montgomery in February. He was not a delegate, but he told a Mississippi delegate that he would serve in any capacity they wanted him. And when they got to Montgomery, they decided to have each state would have one vote. There were only six states because Texas, seven states seceded, but Texas didn't secede till the 1st of February, and the Texas delegates didn't get to Montgomery before the decisions about the Constitution and the executive officers were made, and Davis was chosen president. There are those who argue that there was a contest for the presidency. I don't really think that's true. The only people who could have really opposed him successfully have been Georgians. Georgia had the strongest delegation in Montgomery in terms of the caliber of people. And they had one man who really wanted it. Perhaps some of you have heard of Robert Toombs, who was also a United States Senator in 1860. But Toombs had a very strong proclivity toward the bottle. And he uh, exercised this proclivity in Montgomery and just sort of ruled himself out. <laughs> <laughs> the other man was Howell Cobb, who was a very prominent Georgia politician, had been in James Buchanan's cabinet in 1860. Cobb said he didn't want it. And of course, the third man was Alexander Stevens, who had become the vice president. But Stevens had opposed secession vigorously and vehemently. And he was just too much on that side for the delegates in Montgomery to think about giving the first slot to. So Davis was really um, clearly the man they wanted, and he had what nobody else had. He could present executive experience, administrative experience, in the Secretary of War. Been a major politician. He also had military experience, both in uniform and out of uniform. That is, not only an officer in the Army, but a Secretary of War. Nobody had that combined experience that he had. Well, see, I think it's interesting you pointed out that there were only six votes yeah. in Montgomery which is something people don't. Four votes would get it for you. But of course, you well, no, he was chosen provisional president. Yes. These people were Americans, and they didn't intend to have some sort of monarchy or authoritarian government. Uh, Davis and Stevens were chosen president, vice president for one year. There would be an election in November of 1861 for the winners to take office in the beginning, in the spring of 1862. Remember, in the 19th century, presidents were elected in November like now, but they didn't take office till March the 4th. So for them to have an election in November and then to take office in, the, in February or March was not unusual. Just for information, South Carolina didn't get around to agreeing to the Confederate Constitution until late in the spring of 1861. Well, the South Carolina delegation was unusual in, in Montgomery in the fact that the Leading fire eater, that is, the most radical of radical secessionists was Robert Barnwell Rett from this state. And Robert Barnwell Rett thought being president of the Confederacy was his due. That he had been so instrumental in getting the state to get out, and getting South Carolina was critical to getting everybody else out. Because this was the one state that was radical enough that they could push out without some overt act. And the other states would never have gone out if South Carolina hadn't gone first. And the Carolinians knew that. 
And people like Davis knew how critical it was what South Carolina did. And so Rhett thought he should have it, but he was too radical even for his fellow Carolinians. <laughs> and he became an enemy of the Confederate government from that day forward. He couldn't stand Jefferson Davis and anything the Davis administration did till the war ended. You've got us now into the war. The capital moves from Montgomery to Richmond. It moves from Montgomery to Richmond for two reasons. One, the, the, the Confederates, the, the seven states, the original seven, they all thought of Virginia as the mother of the South. I mean, Virginia's first southern colony settled. So many of the other states had grown out of Virginia. So many of those people in the middle 19th century had antecedents from Virginia, still back in Virginia. Virginia was the home of George Washington, the father of the country, the revolution, Thomas Jefferson. They wanted Virginia. So when Virginia comes out, Richmond is a logical choice to be the capital. On top of that, Richmond was the leading manufacturing city in the South at that time. It had the largest ironworks. Treading ironworks could build locomotives, naval guns. Richmond would have to be protected. On top of that, Montgomery was a village, and they had to go someplace. Montgomery simply wasn't big enough to handle the growing Confederate government at that time. So for all these reasons, the government was transferred to Richmond. When Davis was elected in November of 1861, he had his inauguration as the first elected president of the Confederacy on a specific day in a specific place. So on February the 22nd, 1861, at the foot of the equestrian statue of George Washington on the Virginia State Capitol grounds. Of course, that's Washington's birthday, February the 22nd. He was trying to identify with the revolution. He saw the Confederate States of America as the direct descendant of the United States of America. And his vision, the Republicans, those who had taken control of the executive branch in 1860, they had shunned the legacy of the American Revolution. They had shunned what made the American Revolution special. And the Southerners now, they are the ones who had to make the revolution whole to keep it going. As president, Davis and the Confederacy have to create a central government from scratch. They do. And it's interesting, a lot of the clerks in the departments in Washington, when they went with their states, when their states went out, a lot of those people were Southern. Because Southerners had controlled the executive branch for so long, they took stationery and rule books and guidebooks with them to Montgomery. That's what the Confederates started with because they had zero. They had absolutely nothing. They had to build a government from the ground up. And what they did, they said, we'll just adopt all the rules the federal government had. And as we go along, you know, the bureaucracy, we have to change things, we'll change them, but we'll start there because that's the known quantity. But they had to build from the ground up, and of course the war came so fast. And Davis was inaugurated in, in February in Montgomery. Within two months, the Confederate States were at war. And so that changed everything. The war became the most important item in, on the agenda. Everything else was secondary. You talked about Davis as commander-in-chief, the military side and the political side. He was a really good politician and understood the public's demand and support. But supporting what might not be necessary for the general populace took a back seat once the war. Well, okay. for Davis, the war was everything because he said, if we don't win the war, we won't maintain our independence. And maintaining Confederate independence was what the whole struggle was about. And he realized that the Southerners did not have a sense of nationhood. There was no sense of Confederate nationhood in 1861. The Confederacy didn't exist until 1861. He realized that loyalty was to states initially. But what he thought could happen was that during the war, a Confederate nationalism could build, just like it had during the American Revolution. He thought that could happen to the Confederates. And he thought war was a cauldron, and in this cauldron, nationalism and patriotism could develop. But understanding about state loyalty, he wanted army units, for example, organized brigades by states because he said that's the best way to have loyalty in the beginning, to have people from a given state in brigades. Again, this would be just the precursor of what he hoped would grow into a Confederate loyalty. And of course, Davis was a Confederate from the word go. The trauma of the United States breaking up meant for him the Confederate states simply could not fail. And he made judgments about individuals, about men, important men, based on what he considered their loyalty to be. How loyal were they? The Confederate experiment in his judgment did not leave room for human peccadilloes, did not leave room for human faults. You had to overcome these things. He told himself he had overcome. 
he told himself that he had become simply a confederate, a selfless confederate who was working only for the cause. And he could say that because his home was overrun by the Federals early on. His older brother, his surrogate father, was a refugee. He had given up so much. He believed that he was a selfless patriot acting only for the cause. And everybody else had to do the same. If they didn't measure up on that count, they didn't measure up. One example. In 1861, he sent to the Confederate Congress a list of five full generals, the highest-ranking Confederate army. I won't go into how he chose those five. But number four on that list was a man named Joseph Johnston. Most of you have heard of the name Joseph Johnston. Joseph Johnston had been the highest-ranking officer in the United States Army to go with the Confederates. He had been a one-star general, a brigadier general. And he thought that that meant he should rank first in the con amongst Confederate generals. And in fact, Confederate law said that the ranks coming from the United States Army should have importance. Davis made Johnston number four for various reasons, and Johnston was livid. He wrote an angry, angry letter to Davis, and he did what we're all told to do when we're angry. He put it in a drawer. Wait till the next day. Then he sent it. <laughs> <laughs> and Davis got it, and Davis was appalled. And what Paul Davis, Johnson had let his selfish ambition step ahead of the cause, whereas he should have said, I want to serve wherever I can and whatever position I can serve. From that moment on, Jefferson Davis had no use for Joseph Johnston. He didn't trust him. He didn't think the man was committed as he should have been, whereas other people, perhaps some of you have not heard of a Confederate general named Leonidas Polk or Leonidas Polk, Davis had known him at West Point, but he left West Point and became an Episcopal clergyman, became the first Episcopal bishop of Louisiana. He hadn't been in the Army since he left West Point. He went to Richmond in 1861 talking about the Confederacy. Now, Davis made him a major general. I mean, it was idiotic. And Pope proved time and time again that he was utterly incompetent. Not only was he incompetent, he was a backbiter, and he disrupted morale in the major Western army. But for Davis, Pope was a guy who was committed to the cause. And, and that's the kind of judgments he made. Well, and of course, Bishop Polk was killed. He, he was killed. Cannonball ran through his chest. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and during the Atlanta campaign. There's a monument there. Some of you may have been to the Kennesaw Mountain National Military Park north of Atlanta, just to the west of Kennesaw at Pine Mountain. It's not a part of the park. There, you can go up there, there's a little monument where Bishop Polk was killed. He was standing up there looking at the Union lines and a cannonball went right through his chest. He was a big man, so he, he, it was enough of a target for the cannonball. Well, but to use those two examples, Polk said the right, there were a lot of, uh, there were other generals that way too who weren't necessarily. Right, well what Davis would do, for example, uh, one of the people that you hear so much about Davis is Braxton Bragg. You know, Braxton Bragg is famous as being a martinet and so forth. They, example, they say in the old army, Braxton Bragg was a supply officer as well as a commanding officer of a small unit. And as a supply officer, he put a request in for essential supplies, and as a commanding officer, he rejected that request because they weren't essential. <laughs> uh, that, that's true. <laughs> but when the war began, Bragg had been a um, successful officer of the United States Army. He came into the Confederate Army, and he began at Pensacola in Florida, which was a backwater of the war. He was really training troops. The troops he would train would mainly go to Virginia to fight. And Bragg was there. Bragg never complained. He never complained. In Virginia, Davis had to deal with Johnston, and in the same kind of way with General Beauregard. And Bragg never complained at anything. And so Bragg kept going up and up and up and up, and he made a wonderful march from northern Mississippi south down and up through Georgian to Tennessee, uh, but Bragg uh, had a great deal of difficulty when it came to battlefield command, handling troops on the battlefield. He also had a great deal of difficulty uh, maintaining any camaraderie amongst his senior officers. And there would be all sorts of letters coming back to Richmond complaining about Bragg, complaining about Bragg. One general this, one general that. And Davis sent people out to see what they could do. He actually went out there, two different occasions. And the last time he went out there was after the Confederate victory in the fall of 1863 at Chickamauga, the major Confederate victory in the West, just almost in Chattanooga, Tennessee, the edge of the Tennessee line in northern Georgia. 
And the Confederate Army under Bragg did not drive the Federals out of Chattanooga. They laid siege to Chattanooga. And Davis went out there and terrible fighting amongst the generals. All the generals blamed each other for everything. Each one of them said that they would be the best in command. They all said Bragg was horrible. Bragg said they were horrible. It was a, it was a snake pit. <laughs> and Davis went out there, and he listened to all this. And unbelievably, he left Bragg in command. Now, he knew what he had done because he appointed to come to the Army a senior general who had been away from the Army. He wrote this general letter, and he says, things are difficult there. I know you will get it straightened out because I know you will put the cause of everything else and you will make sure everybody else puts the cause of everything else. Again, the cause, loyalty. He didn't have the steel to say, look, you don't measure up, you got to go. He didn't have the ruthlessness to say, you've just got to go. Abraham Lincoln had that ruthlessness. And what else he did as a commander in chief in a military fashion? He rarely, people say he micromanaged his generals. He rarely managed them at all. Once he put them in command, he might make some general suggestions, but that's all. He let them run their armies. Now, with Robert E. Lee, that went really well, uh, but he didn't have but one Robert E. Lee. Other places, he needed to have some hands on. He didn't put his hands on, and his cause suffered for it. I think you straighten out. There's been some authors who've said that Lee and Davis were always at cross purposes, offensive maneuvers, defensive strategy, but that's, that, that wasn't and the case. You, you look at, again, go back to the letters he wrote Verena in the spring of 1862. He told her that he and Lee were working in concert, that Lee understood what he wanted, that Lee would act as he wanted him to act. After the Battle of Second Manassas in the late summer of 1862, and Lee got ready to invade Maryland, people have said, well, Lee didn't write Davis to get permission because he knew Davis wouldn't give him permission. Right before that battle, Davis had told another officer that Lee understands what I want, and as soon as he can get up across that river, he will. They were both aggressive. And Lee remained Davis's chief advisor throughout the war. Early on, he was Davis, his assignment was as Davis's military advisor. But even though when he became commanding general of the Army in Northern Virginia, he still remained close advisor to Davis. Davis rarely took any major military decision without asking Lee's opinion. Didn't always take Lee's opinion, but he rarely made a decision without asking for Lee's opinion. You mentioned some of the military activity. Let's, let's look at what was going on in Richmond. If there ever were a mayor's nest, it was the Confederate Congress, the politics, the backbiting. Uh, and Davis, he did have headaches all the time. I mean, literally, he had a help. Well, no, Davis was a man, his medical history, he should have been dead before he was 40 years old. And the fact that he lived past 80 in the 19th century is quite astonishing. He had serious maladies of various and sundry kinds, from ophthalmological problems to bronchial problems to, the, to uh, manifestations all of his life of his illness with uh, of, of his uh, malaria as a, as, as a young man. So he had terrible health problems. He, he did have bad headaches. But the Congress was not exactly the noblest part of the Confederate experiment. At the same time, one would have to say about Davis and Congress that Davis got from Congress almost everything he wanted. Now, there were some, some people in the Congress who could not abide him. Take, for example, I suppose the most famous one is Joseph Brown, who was the governor of Georgia. And Joseph Brown, along with Alexander Stevens, who was, of course, from Georgia, was his vice president. He and Stevens didn't get along at all. And some of their compatriots in Georgia they did all they could to oppose Davis and to oppose what he was doing. They called him a tyrant. They opposed all kinds of measures, such as conscription. And yet, if you look at what Georgia does, they couldn't even get the Georgia legislature to go on record opposing Davis. But even when things were going bad, when Davis came to South Carolina, he had a visit to Columbia late in the war, and it was almost a triumphal procession. And, of course, he stayed at the Chestnut Cottage, and addressed the citizens of Columbia from that porch. He did. You know, one thing about Davis, he didn't stay in Richmond, closed up in his uh, executive mansion or in his office, which was in the customs house, which is still in Richmond. That's where his uh, official office was. On three occasions, the end of 62, the beginning of 63, fall of 63, and again the fall of 64, he went out west, spoke to the Army, spoke to Many groups along the way addressed legislatures. Now, you could see what was happening to the Confederacy. The first time he went all the way to Vicksburg, 
The last time he didn't get much past Atlanta. He couldn't keep going west. The Confederacy was losing, but he went out. He tried very hard to take his message out to the larger public. And as I say, he didn't just go see generals and make command decisions. He made public speeches, impromptu stops on the railroad. All this was, of course, on, on, on trains. Lincoln never did that, and Lincoln went to see his army often in Virginia and Maryland. I said that once in a talk I gave in Vermont at the home of Abraham Lincoln's son to a group, and I was really roasted because I suggested Davis did something good that Lincoln didn't do. <laughs> I told him I didn't really, wasn't really saying that Lincoln didn't feel the need to go, but I mean, Davis did do that. And that was all I was trying to say, that he was not a, a closet president. Okay, well, we need to get to the, the years after the war. Let's, let's start, the war ends, he knows things are, he flees Richmond, yeah. is captured in Georgia. Captured outside of the village of Erwinville, Georgia, which is south of Macon, down in southwest Georgia. He was captured there by federal cavalry units, and he was taken to Augusta by train and from Augusta by boat down to, to Hilton Head and then by ship up the coast to Fortress Monroe where he was incarcerated in 1865. He remained there incarcerated until 1867 when he was um, given bail. He was never brought to trial because the federal government couldn't decide what to do. Government officials were very concerned about a trial because try somebody for treason, which is what they wanted to try him for, you'd have to do it in Virginia because the Constitution says if you try somebody for treason, you have to try them where the acts take place. And Virginia, Richmond was his capital. Some in the federal government said, well, let's put him in Pennsylvania. They said, no, you can't do that. That's unconstitutional. Then they said, well, gosh, if we try him in Richmond, suppose the jury. <laughs> we might have the jury we really want, but it won't take but one person in that jury who's some Confederate sympathizer, and then our whole theory of the war will go down the tubes. We will have fought this war and call it a rebellion, and then the jury says it's not a rebellion. What do we do? And then there were those in the government who wanted to try him before a military tribunal, like the, uh, those who were charged with Lincoln's assassination were tried. Others said, no, we can't do that because that would be unconstitutional. The war is over. There's no evidence. They tried to make Davis complicit, and some did in Lincoln's assassination, but there was no evidence for that. And then Davis got caught up in the contest between the President, Andrew Johnson, and the Congress over Reconstruction policy. Nobody wanted to give on Davis because that would give the other side a weapon to attack. So Davis didn't really languish in prison. He was in a pretty spartan situation to start with. He was in a dank casemate. He, people say he was shackled. He was shackled for less than a week. And he was in this case. But then he moved into the bachelor officer's quarters, into a private room. And then when Verena got down there, after a while, she and he had an apartment together in this officer's quarters. And they were give, allowed visitors, and people would come to see him. They'd bring him cigars and brandy and good foodstuffs and such like that. So, but he was still a prisoner. But finally, the, the, the feds, federal government decided, look, we just can't go try this guy. We go let him out. And they bailed him out. And he was still indicted, but the, he, he was not coming to trial. And he was not, that, that possibility was not lifted until just before Andrew Johnson left the White House in 1869. But between 67 and when he got out in 69, his lawyers kept telling him it's a possibility, we don't think it's going to happen. Of course, he never did come to trial. He really wanted to come to trial because he was convinced he was right in what he'd done in seceding and that he could convince anybody that he was right. But his lawyers were worried that if they came to trial that the judge who was a Lincoln appointee might f stack the jury against him. And so <laughs> both sides were worried about the jury. Both worried about it from a political point of view, not a legal point of view. Okay, he, he is freed. He goes back to Mississippi. His place is in ruins. Well, he goes back to Mississippi. His place is in ruins. Joseph, when he gave Jefferson the land to set up his plantation, and everybody called it Jefferson Davis's plantation, Joseph never gave him title to the land. So when Joseph was pardoned by Andrew Johnson after the war, Joseph said, well, all this property here is mine. And so Johnson gave him back title to all the property, including what Jefferson had been farming. Now, there's no way Jefferson had title he'd ever gotten it back. But Joseph got it all back. Now, when Jefferson left uh, Fortress from Monroe, 
he went to Canada. That's where his children and his wife were because Verena was, had been worried about the, what the federal government might do to her and to her children. And he went to Canada, and he, of course he had no money. They were living on money that had come from Confederate sources, chiefly sources that had been in Europe to sponsor Confederate efforts in Europe. They had funds that had come back to help the Davis defense team and to help Verena. You cannot make a detailed accounting of these funds, but the evidence is clear. Comments are clear that that's where the money came from. But he still tries somehow to, to, to support his family. He became the agent for a Canadian mining group that wanted to sell shares in their mines or sell their mines in England. And they thought that Davis could go over there and as a representative of the, the lost cause of the South with pro-Southern Britishers, rich Englishmen who, who had favored the Confederacy, uh, that Davis could get some money out of them. That failed, and so he came back to this country, leaving his wife abroad, and he got a job as the um, president of the, the Carolina Life Insurance Company. That was called the Carolina Life Insurance Company, but its headquarters in Memphis, Tennessee. The title gives you its ambition. They wanted to be Southwide. Now, Verena didn't want to go live in Memphis. She would have been satisfied, she said, with Baltimore. And <laughs> Jefferson wrote her a letter, and he said, you know, things have changed. And he talked about that, you know, I'm not a senator, I'm not a planner, I have to go where I can get a job that would support the family. He was offered academic jobs. He was offered two. He was offered the job as chancellor at Sewanee, the University of the South, and he was offered the presidency of Texas A&M. But neither one paid enough. He couldn't take either one. So he went to Memphis as the president of Carolina Life Insurance Company, and Verena finally came and joined him, and they were there with their four children, two boys and two girls. One of the sons, had been killed during the war. He'd fallen off a porch at the Confederate Executive Mansion in 1864 and was killed. And in, in Memphis, a little boy about nine years old, a guy, I think it was diphtheria, he died. The Carolina Life Insurance Company failed in the Panic of 1873, which was the Depression of 1873. Davis got on with a company that professed to uh, be promoting trade between Great Britain and Europe and the Mississippi Valley. He was to be the American representative. It was a fine title, but there was no money. And so he went back to Europe to try to drum up some money for this thing. He wrote some sad letters every place he went. There was no, 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 no. So he came back to Memphis. He had nothing, and this is when he was offered the place down at Beauvoir, and he went down there in the middle of the 1870s, and he lived there for the rest of his life. In fact, he was going to buy the place from his benefactor, but she died of breast cancer and left it to him. And that's where he wrote his memoirs. He wrote his memoirs there. He went down there as a visitor to write his memoirs, and he started there, and uh, he, he finished them there. But he didn't finish them as a historian and a writer. Walter knows this. Sometimes it's difficult. Davis's publisher decided that they wouldn't get any place with him, so Davis's publisher sent a representative down there, and that man really whipped the book into shape. If he hadn't shown up at Beauvoir, I'm not sure that the rise and fall of the Confederate government would have ever risen. Of course, um, <laughs> any of you have picked it up to read, you might not have been distressed if it hadn't risen. Okay, let's get back to the title of your book, Jefferson Davis, American. Please explain. Well, to me, Davis believed in a certain view of America from his youth until his death. He thought that in 1860, when the Republicans won the executive mansion and the Republicans would not give to the South what he considered the Southern rights to be Americans, that is, he believed that the Southerners had every right as every other American, including the right to own slaves, and Davis never backed away from slavery. He never ducked on slavery. That slavery was a part of America, that the great heroes of the American past, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, Zachary Taylor, amongst others, all had been slave owners. There was slavery in America. There was no contradiction. And Americans had just as much right to go with their slave institution into uh, territories owned by the United States as anybody else particularly those territories taken from Mexico, because so many Southerners, including Jefferson Davis, had fought and bled in Mexico. Davis was wounded in Mexico. Southern treasure, Southern blood was there. He thought it was utterly un-American to deny 
Southerners the right to go into those territories with their slave property. And so the United States of America that he believed in, he believed had been sidetracked or shanghaied by the Republican Party. And the Confederate States of America then became the America that he believed in. In the aftermath of the Civil War, he felt that Reconstruction, like most white Southerners of his class, he felt that Reconstruction was simply the Republican Party carrying on the war in a different manner. But with the end of Reconstruction, his view changed about that. Not about Reconstruction, but about the country. Now, the white South was back in charge of blacks. The United States of America looked upon the South as a legitimate part of America. Southerners who had been in the Confederate service in important places were now back in the United States Congress. Politicians courted the South. And Davis made speeches in the 80s praising the United States, praising how strong the United States was becoming, how wealthy it was becoming. And he told Southern young people that they should be proud of their past. They should cherish it, but they should not be trapped by it. But he had been part of that past, but that was gone. He said he had supported secession, he would never support it again. That the United States of America was the future, and that's what young Southerners should look to. So the last sentence in his so-called memoir, it's really not a memoir, it's an apologia, but it's the last sentence in Latin, and it says, never shall the division, I can't quote it exactly, but never shall be divided again. And when he died in 1889, that's what he believed. That's why I call it Jefferson Davis American. All right. Very good. Let's, let's stop there, and we'll take some questions from the audience. Do you believe that Jefferson Davis should have surrendered earlier in the war to prevent the further bloodshed? That's a very good question, and it's very difficult to know the answer to that for a number of reasons. One, it's not clear at all from the record when he actually believed it was all over. We know that in the winter of 64-65, late 64-65, because of a letter Judah Benjamin wrote him after the war, Judah Benjamin was a member of his cabinet and a close confidant of his, that they knew things were really, really, really bad. And in the December of 64, he had told the Confederate Congress that he wanted the Congress to pass a law allowing the Confederate government to own slaves to work on projects, but we weren't, he said, we don't need them yet to be in the Army. Within two months, he was asking the Confederate Congress to pass a law allowing slaves to serve in the Confederate Army. He knew things were terrible. But he was so committed to the Confederacy. The Union had failed. The Confederacy simply couldn't fail. I think psychologically, he couldn't believe there was no chance. And he met with Lee so many times in the winter of 65, because, of course, Lee was in Petersburg. He would ride out to meet Lee. Lee would come to Richmond. Unfortunately, we have no record of any of these conversations, but we do know that what they planned was that when Lee had to finally leave Petersburg, that he would go southwest, Davis would go with him, and they would hope to meet up with the Confederate Army coming up from the south, who by this time, that army was commanded by none other than Joseph Johnston, was coming back up toward Virginia that, that Lee and Johnston would get together and they could beat Sherman first then turn on Grant. He really believed that this could happen. And when he left Richmond, he went to Danville, Virginia, southwest of Richmond, and there he, he issued a proclamation in which he said that, you know, we don't have to protect Richmond now. General Lee can operate in the open. We can have a better chance. We're like the American Revolution. He always thought about the American Revolution. The American cause had been so desperate for so many times. Even toward the end, the American cause was desperate until Yorktown. He thought by some, something could happen. And then, of course, at Danville, he got word that Lee had surrendered, and that crushed him. And Lee couldn't get there because Grant got between him and Danville. And then he went down to Greensboro, and Johnston had to surrender. After that, he knew it was over, except there was a Confederate army in what the Confederates called the Trans-Mississippi, West Mississippi River. And that's where he was trying to go when he was captured. He was trying to get the overland, at least get to the Gulf Coast where he could take a boat to Mexico and come up into Texas. So whether he should have stopped, of course, for hindsight, we could say, yes, he should have stopped. 
but it would have been really hard for him to do that psychologically, and nobody else was saying stop except for a few people. Nobody in the Congress came to him and said stop. And in February of 65, they had this conference with Lincoln and Seward down the James River, and Lincoln made it perfectly plain that any peace required giving up independence and giving up slavery. And a lot of Southerners, even in February 65, weren't willing to do that. Now, we look back now and we say, February 65, my God, it's the end. But they didn't know that. There were people in the Confederate Congress, for example, who opposed putting slaves in uniform based on the Dred Scott decision back in 1857. I mean, these people were totally, from our point of view, totally out of touch with reality. But they didn't see the end coming this fast. Okay. Bill Cooper, King Street native, I want to thank you for coming back home to South Carolina to have this conversation on the Civil War. Thank you. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation today with King Street native William Cooper about Jefferson Davis, American. Join us next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.